good morning. I hope that you all had a great Thanksgiving, got to spend it with uh, people that you love or at least could tolerate for an afternoon. Uh, we had a great time as a, as a family, some good, good time off, and just uh, been a great morning of worship and celebration here uh, this morning at, at Sherwood Oaks. Now, now that we have, have gotten through Thanksgiving, and, and some people were very offended by what I just said right there. I, I apologize. We don't get through Thanksgiving. We enjoy Thanksgiving. Now that we have enjoyed Thanksgiving, uh, the Christmas season is about ready to be turned up to 11. Like everywhere you go, you're going to be surrounded by Christmas. And that includes here at Sherwood Oaks. We're going to be decorating the church this week. When you come in next week, we'll have trees up on the stage to kind of help set our hearts and our minds on the Christmas season. And we have a ton that's going to be going on around Christmas this year. We have the ladies uh, Christmas gathering that's going to be happening in our lobby next Saturday morning at 9.30 a.m. Ladies, all of you are invited. We'd love for you to come. There's going to be worship. There's going to be giveaways. There's going to be hot chocolate. Sounds like it's going to be a great morning, so we hope that you'll join us for that. Uh, on Wednesday, December 8th, we are going to be um, hosting, uh, once again, the IU Jacobs School of Music uh, Christmas Harps, and so I know for many people, that's like when the holidays start for you, and so we invite you to come out here. It's a free event, 6.30, Wednesday, December 8th. Uh, and then, of course, we're going to be ringing the bell for Salvation Army on, the, on December 18th. Our church has taken the entire day. Uh, and then our Christmas Eve services, we're going to have four of them this year. Uh, we're going to have a 7 o'clock on the 23rd. And then on the 24th, we'll have a 2.30, 4 o'clock, and 5.30. So we hope that you and your families will join us for one of those. You'll invite some friends, some neighbors to come and celebrate. And again, all of this uh, can be found on our website, socc.org slash Christmas. That's where you can get all of the most up-to-date information. We even have some fun things on there. You can sign up for an Advent devotional and you can uh, follow a Christmas playlist that we are curating on all of, you know, like the Spotify and Apple Music and I think YouTube Music is gonna be on there that our staff is, is curating and some of our key volunteers are gonna be curating. We may even open up to our entire church just to put your favorite Christmas songs in there. And our staff has excellent, excellent choice of music, including Matt Limbrick, who I may have offended last service by saying it wasn't the greatest. I love you, Matt. I love you, man. <laughs> so uh, a lot of things, a lot of really good things that are happening. And again, all of it is so that we can set our hearts and our minds on Jesus as we come into this Advent season. And this is the time of year when we really focus our minds and celebrate the birth of Jesus, his arrival on earth, because it changed absolutely everything for, for everyone. Jesus was no ordinary child. He came as the long-awaited Messiah. And if you're following along uh, in our Core 52 series and study, uh, we're going to be looking at what that means today. Mark Moore uh, writes just an incredible essay on what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And so I hope that you'll join us and jump in on that. If you are new and want to pick up a book, we got one out in the, the lobby. But essentially, that word Messiah that we're going to be studying this week and that we're looking at this morning, that word Messiah means anointed one. 
The Messiah was the chosen one of God. He was set apart to restore and and save and all of the prophecies that pointed to the Messiah talked about this coming king that was going to be the, the rescuer. And so for Israel, expectations were incredibly high about who the Messiah would be and, and what he would be like, the type of king that he would be and the kingdom that he would usher in. They anticipated a warrior king like David, who would reunite the broken kingdom of Israel and who would vanquish all of their enemies, all of their foes. Their understanding of Messiah was fueled by several Old Testament passages talking about this coming king who would defeat all enemies. And it's included in our core verse for this week, Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. It says, the Lord says to my Lord, this is David writing these, who is king here, and so there's really no one else that that David would call Lord, that no one else that he would really surrender or submit to unless it was someone even greater than him. And David says, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, the one that I surrender to, the one who is an authority even over me, the one who is to come, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is Yahweh God inviting the future Messiah to sit at his right hand. Sitting at the right hand of someone was a, was a position of power and authority and command. It, it paints the picture of a king who will rule and reign, not, not separate, not distant, but close to the father. And from that proximity would come great power over his enemies. They will be turned into a footstool for his feet. It's kind of weird imagery for our 21st century Western minds, but but this was a metaphor in the ancient Near East about total command and control. This this idea of of having uh, absolute control over one's enemies and authority over them. It's the image of a victorious king resting his feet on the necks of his enemies. And the rest of the psalm kind of just continues to explore this idea of the Messiah being a prophet, a priest, and a king. He will be this conquering king who will rule justly, who will represent the people to God and God to the people. He will speak for God like a prophet, stand before God on behalf of the people like a priest, and he will lead them as a king victorious over all nations. At least that was the expectation. That that was the anticipation for the coming Messiah. Fast forward a thousand years roughly and and exactly 400 pages in my Bible and you get to Luke chapter 4. In fact, if you have a Bible or a Bible app that you like to use, go ahead and pull that out. That's going to be our text for today. We want to do a little bit deeper dive in. Luke chapter 4. I loved it. Last service, there was a a little girl, maybe six, seven years old, and she was walking in and she had her Bible. And when I said turn to the passage, I I, I watched as she looked up and her mom helped her find where Luke chapter four was. Like, man, it's so good for us to get into the word together. Luke chapter four. 
When we pick up the, the account here, uh, Jesus has, has already been born. There's, there's already been a few things that have happened in his life, but, but really you just have to go right there to his birth and really his, his first couple of years. And, and there was a whole lot of fanfare around the arrival of Jesus because, because there were so many things that pointed him and gave clues that he might be the Messiah. He might be the one that Psalm 1101 and, and other Old Testament prophecies were talking about. And so, in fact, several messianic prophecies were filled, fulfilled just in the birth of Jesus in his first couple of, of years. And so news about Jesus started to spread and, and, and curiosity about who he is and what he's going to do began to, to grow. People wondered, who is this guy? What's his, what's his next move? And, and Jesus is about ready to, to unveil a little bit more so that they can understand exactly who he is and what he's come to do. In Luke 4, Jesus preaches his first sermon and it was pretty profound. He, he reads a passage of scripture, sits down and says eight words. Some of us preachers could probably take a cue <laughs> from how Jesus preached, <laughs> but not today. Uh, so he goes on <laughs> and this is what we read in Luke chapter four, starting in verse 14. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. He's just been baptized. He's just been uh, tested in the wilderness, 40 days, 40 nights of fasting. He's coming back. He returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom he stood up to read, the scroll, uh, to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. See, the crowd knew what this meant. See, they knew what it meant for Jesus to read that passage and to then say, today, that has been fulfilled in your hearing. This was a messianic text from the prophet Isaiah and for Jesus to say that this is now fulfilled in him. Well, this, is, this was big news for a small community. Jesus is announcing himself right here in this text. He is announcing himself as the long-awaited Messiah. The prophet, the priest, and the king that all of the Old Testament pointed to. And so you can imagine the people were absolutely ecstatic. This hometown kid was going to be the hero that rescues and restores Israel. And everyone spoke well of him. And they celebrated him because of what they expected him to do. And then six verses later, they're trying to throw him off of a cliff. <laughs> And what in the world could Jesus have said in just a few verses that would have made 
the, the attitude of the crowd swing from over here where we're celebrating him and speaking well of him to wanting to chuck him off a cliff. Let's pick it up in verse 23. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you have done in Capernaum. And truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah, the prophet, was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon, outside of Israel. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Again, someone outside of Israel. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out to the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. I love this picture of Jesus the rebel. <laughs> Jesus making the religious people very uncomfortable. Challenging their perspective about who God was, what he's like, and who the Messiah would be. I've said it before, they didn't kill Jesus because they liked him. <laughs> and this is, this is one of the very first times when, when the crowd who wanted, who wanted to celebrate him were put off by him and wondering who is this guy and what is he really all about? Essentially what Jesus is saying is that the freedom and the forgiveness, the, the restoration and the renewal, it's not just for Israel. It's not just for you. It's not just for us. This is for all people. Jesus said that he's not just here to rescue and restore their nation, but to rescue and restore the entire world. And all of a sudden, this group of people who are only focused on their little section of it got pretty uncomfortable and really angry. <laughs> you see, Jesus has and continues to have a way of frustrating religious and nationalistic people who only see the Messiah as caring about, about them about their country, about their people. And people who see the Messiah is only coming to save their tribe or tongue or nation. And so when Jesus, who is Jewish, said that God's love and grace extends to people of all nations, not just their own, it was offensive. And grace often is very offensive. And in announcing the start of his messianic ministry, Jesus is saying a whole lot about the type of king that he would be, about the type of kingdom that he was going to establish. He was a king coming to restore what sin has broken. That's, that's the point of the passage that he reads from Isaiah. He's saying that he is coming to give hope to those who feel spiritually bankrupt, to those who feel like they have nothing, nothing to bring God. Jesus is hope that we don't have to have anything to bring him. Jesus came to make very uncomfortable those who thought that their spiritual bank account was full and they didn't need anything from God. And Jesus was coming to give freedom to those in spiritual bondage 
who felt like there was no way that God could love someone like them after where they've been and after what they've done, those who, who are stuck and trapped in addiction and pain and hurt, those who are living under the bondage of overbearing rules, missing the freedom that God invites us into. He came to give sight to those who are spiritually blind and to come to the defense and the rescue of those who have been oppressed. He says that he's ushering in the year of the Lord's favor. I love, I love this line. This was a, a time when, when all debts would be forgiven and everything would be restored. And Jesus is saying spiritually, I have come so that your sin debt may be forgiven and so that everything can be restored back to the way that God intended it to be. Jesus is the Messiah. He's, he's just not the Messiah that people were expecting. He's not the Messiah that they were looking for. Jesus knew their real enemy was not the Romans. It was not the Babylonians before them. It, it, it was not the Assyrians even before them. Their true enemy continues to be our enemy. The one from all the way back in Genesis chapter three. Satan is the one that Jesus came to defeat and God would ensure his victory over sin and death. He would indeed make Satan a footstool under the feet of Jesus. But the people in Luke 4 missed it because they were looking for another kind of savior. A savior who would meet their needs, a savior who would defeat their enemies. And this was their expectation, not only of the Messiah, but but of God. And in their expectations, they missed the Messiah that was standing right in front of them all along, but they also missed the heart of a father for the world around them. They had created a version of God and a version of the Messiah that God never intended. Author Anne Lamott states it well and convictingly. She says, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. <laughs> and many of us have probably created a God that looks and thinks and has leanings exactly like ours. We've missed the Messiah. We've missed the heart of God because we're looking to something else or to someone else to save us. Israel had created a God in their own image and so of course his Messiah, the warrior king, would rescue them from their enemies. They were looking for someone to save them but it turns out that they were looking for someone or something other than God. It was a version of God but it wasn't the real thing. And the truth is, is that if we're honest with ourselves, we continue to do that today, don't we? I do that even today. We look to something or someone other than Jesus to save or to rescue us. Some people refer to these things as functional saviors. They're the things that we turn to other than Jesus that we hope will save us from, from however we define hell. And so if hell is being lonely, then a functional savior may be a relationship, even if it's an unhealthy relationship, because we're afraid of being by ourselves. So we prop that person up as a functional savior who can rescue us from the hell of being alone. 
If hell is boredom, then a functional savior might be your phone that's never more than just an arm reach away and can entertain you with social media and videos and games and save you from your boredom. And many of us know what it's like to make sacrifices to our devices by not being present in the moment or giving our full attention to those around us. If hell is confrontation, then your functional savior is conflict avoidance. (laughs) And so you just kind of keep this false sense of peace by emotionally running away from hard conversations or setting boundaries in your life. Our functional saviors show up in a variety of forms and fashions and they're unique for all of us. Some of them can even be good things that we turn into God things and become destructive things. In the book, uh, The Book Ends of the Christian Life, the authors give us a pretty good definition for these. They, They say, sometimes we look to other things to satisfy and fulfill us, to save us. These functional saviors can be any object of dependence we embrace that isn't God. They become the source of our identity, security, and significance because we hold an idolatrous affection for them in our hearts. They preoccupy our minds and consume our time and resources. They make us feel good and somehow even make us feel righteous. Whether we realize it or not, they control us and we worship them. Some of us have made work our functional savior. We were, have a, a family Christmas tradition that uh, whenever we put up our Christmas tree, we watch the movie Elf um, because it's the best Christmas movie that uh, has ever been made, but anyway. Uh, so we'll, we'll watch the, the movie Elf and, uh, and just, I, I've heard and watched that movie so many times and I still laugh uh, at the line where the boss comes in and he, he sees Buddy the Elf and he's like, what are you doing? I'm smiling. Why are you smiling? Because smiling's my favorite. Work is your favorite. Make work your favorite. <laughs> and many of us, we've made like work our favorite. We've made it into our functional savior. Our career gives our lives meaning and purpose. It provides financial security for us and our family. And we prop that up above all else because, because we need that security net. We need that comfort in our life. And there's nothing wrong with work. It just makes for a horrible savior. And sometimes we sacrifice the ones that we love to it. We can make politics our functional savior. Politicians. We look to them to rescue and save us. We can look to traditions Quentin mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. Sometimes we even look to worship as a functional savior. I absolutely loved a few weeks ago when we just struck the stage, put up the cross, Quentin led from guitar down on on the floor. Many of you have said that was one of the most powerful worship services that you've ever been a part of. And what I love about it is what he said, that that sometimes we we can make the method of our worship, the object of our worship, and it's true. We can look to worship to be that functional savior, to give us the, the warm fuzzies that we look for, or, or to even sing the songs that we prefer, the way that we prefer them. 
And we lift that up as our, as our Savior to bring comfort and peace into our lives. Anything we look to for identity, security, significance, anything we turn to other than Jesus to save and rescue us can become in that place of a functional savior, an idol that we have in our life. And so how can we know for sure what those things are? A couple of things that I find helpful to identify my own. First is in the acronym HALT. Uh, HALT stands for hurting, angry, lonely, tired. And, and to begin to identify maybe some functional saviors that you run to, begin by asking yourselves, where do I turn when I'm hurting? Where do I go to when there's a wound inside of me, where maybe someone said something hurtful to me, when I carry some baggage from a past experience, where do I run, where do I turn, who do I run to? Sometimes that reveals who our functional savior is. Where do I go when I'm angry, when I'm just mad at the world and frustrated? Where do I turn when I feel like I can't control anything? Where do I go when I'm lonely, when no one else is at the house, when I'm by myself? Where do I go when I'm looking around and I just wonder who is with me, who is for me? Who do I turn to? Where do you turn when you're tired, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and you just don't have the energy? What, what does your mind naturally just kind of drift to? How we answer those begin to identify and reveal what our functional saviors are. Those things that we look to to provide peace and comfort, security in our life. Some other questions I ask myself because these are fun and not awkward at all, huh? Um, <laughs> I want to ask you this morning what are you most afraid of? Is there something in your fear that you turn to other than Jesus, that you try to cling to other than Him? What do you long for most passionately? Here's a good one. What do you find yourself complaining about the most? And if you're having a hard time thinking of anything, just ask the person next to you or someone close to you because I guarantee you they know what it is that you complain about the most. <laughs> and oftentimes what we complain about reveals this ideal that we're looking for that sometimes we prop up as being the most important thing to pursue in our life. What makes you angry? What do you sacrifice the most for in your life? Whose approval are you seeking? And have you put them on a platform trying to gain their love, their affection, their approval? Where do you run for comfort when life is stressful or you feel out of control? And how you answer those questions often reveal the functional saviors that you turn to other than Jesus to rescue and save you. And the Israelites were looking for a Messiah who would be their functional savior, who would rescue them from their enemies. And in doing so, they missed the actual savior standing right in front of them. And we do too. 
We look to people and things to save us, but only Jesus can be the savior that we actually need. Only Jesus can save us from our true enemy of sin and death and give us new life. Only Jesus can satisfy that deep desire that's within us when we are hurting, angry, lonely, and tired. Everything else leaves us wanting more. And Jesus did this not by becoming the king that people expected, but by becoming the servant that we needed. And as a servant, he went to the cross, laying down his life for us so that our greatest enemy could be defeated. And through the power of the resurrection, God raised Jesus from the grave, making Satan, sin, and death, and all of our functional saviors that we look to, the footstool for the feet of our one true savior and king, Jesus. And the author of Hebrews says, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down, where? At the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And Jesus sat down because the work was done. The enemy had been defeated. The, sin of cur- the curse of sin had been broken and all who call on the name of the Lord can be saved. We're going to come to a time now of communion where we get to remember and celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus that made all of this possible, that our Savior laid his life down willingly for us to save us from our greatest enemy, to provide our greatest need. And here in a moment, the server is going to pass the trays, and in the tray you'll find a stack of cups. The bottom cup has a piece of bread that helps us remember Jesus' body that was given for us. And the top cup has some juice that helps us remember his blood that was shed. As we take these moments in stillness and in quiet, may it be a time for us to just thank God for the gift of the Messiah who came and rescued us from our greatest enemy. And may it also be a time, and I challenge you, to think through some of those questions and ask God to reveal if there's any functional savior that you have placed on the throne of your heart, that you look to for peace and comfort and security over Jesus, the one who can truly give it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love and your patience for us. Thank you, Lord, how you provide for us what we actually need. And and Lord, I know that there are so many times where I think I know what I need and I think I know what I want and I'm pretty convinced I know what I need rescuing from and how you need to do it. But God, you, your ways are perfect and you know exactly what I need. And ultimately, Lord, you answer that through sending Jesus to us. And so we remember that, not just now, but also in this season, we celebrate the gift that he is. Jesus, thank you for being our Messiah who did come to rescue and to save us and that in you, we can be at peace with God and we can find new life here and now. We remember you now, Jesus, and the sacrifice that you made on the cross for us. Amen. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org slash messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.